Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Advances in computer technologies have opened up a number of opportunities to produce some new and innovative assistive devices for the visually impaired. We'll speak with Shuri Azenkot, assistant professor at the Jacobs Technion Cornell Institute at Cornell Tech, about some of her current projects and research in accessibility and human-computer interactions with a focus on low-vision technology. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Shuri Azenkot. Yeah, I think it's really important to try different types of technologies whether they're designed for low vision or blind, I think that even if you do have some vision, we could all benefit from technologies that don't only rely on our vision. And that's something that I personally realized and that we've also seen a lot in the work that we've done with other low vision people. And whether you're sighted or have a visual impairment, you know, trying out new technologies can be an interesting exercise. There are lots of new ways of doing things and new applications that may make your life a little bit easier and tasks easier to perform. So it's important to just try them out sometimes and see what works and what you might like and what you might not like. You don't have to use all the new technologies, but once you find one that's helpful, that can be kind of fun. And the one that works best for you may depend on what that task is that you're trying to do. So keep in mind that you might want to use a variety of technologies. Let's start by meeting Shuri and by learning how she got involved in doing research on assistive technology for people with low vision. My name is Shiri Azenkot, and I'm an assistant professor at Cornell Tech, which is the new Cornell University campus in New York City. And we got your name from Richard Ladner, who we've had on the show before. I gather he was your thesis advisor? Yeah, he was. Uh, I had two advisors when I was working on my PhD. So Richard was one of them. And the other one is his name is Jake Wobrock. And we've also talked with Jeffrey Bingham and Sean Kane, who came from that program in Washington in Ladner's group. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of work that the team works on? Sure. Yeah. So I know Jeff and Sean very well. Like you said, we all uh, got our PhDs at the University of Washington. Richard was all of our advisor. In general, we work on accessibility. Uh, that's the name of the area. And we study people with disabilities to understand what challenges they experience. And then we design and evaluate new technologies to address those challenges. And in our show notes associated with this episode, you'll find links to some of the interviews we did with Richard Ladner, Jeff Bigham, and Sean Kane. Neither Richard nor Jeff nor Sean has a visual impairment themselves, but most of our listeners do. Do you? I do, yeah. I have low vision. And did that motivate you to get into the field? It did eventually. Uh, so when I was growing up, um, and I think this is the case for many people with low vision as opposed to blindness, so you don't really identify as a person with a disability, uh, at least for me, I didn't want to identify as a person with a disability. I didn't. I wasn't really connected with a community 
I didn't have any role models at the time. And I hated assistive technology with a passion. <laughs> so I wanted nothing to do with it. So I, I did my undergrad in computer science and um, I started working as a software developer. And I really didn't feel like any of the work that I was doing had much of an impact on anyone at all. So it was very frustrating. So I started exploring my options and I came across Richard's website. And that's when I first realized that there was this area of research and accessibility. Uh, and a lot of the work that they were doing very much resonated with my personal experiences. So finally it clicked and I realized that I can actually do something that has an impact. Do you use any particular assistive technologies yourself? Yeah, I use magnification on my computer. I have a Mac and I also use the text to speech feature, which lets you highlight text and then have it read out loud. And then I have an iPhone on my phone. I use zoom. Well, that's great. So the combination can really help depending on how your eyes are feeling at the time and what your particular needs are in terms of what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, I think that this is something that's ignored for the most part. You might have some opinions about this, but I feel like the general perception is that if you have low vision, you use magnification. And if you're blind, you use speech. And for me, at least, I used both at the same time. And I only realized how helpful speech can be recently, like in the last two years, which is kind of surprising to me now that I realize how much of a difference it's made in my life. Yeah, it was interesting. Through my career at Xerox, my eyesight was always changing. It mm -hmm. doesn't often get better. But I always learned to use a combination of speech, braille, magnification, and they kind of complemented each other. You know, they all had some different uses. And sometimes my eyes were tired and I'd rely more on speech. Or sometimes I wanted to see the details of a line of programming I was writing and I would refer to the Braille display for that. And sometimes I would use uh, the magnification if I wanted to see a graph or a plot or something. Mm -hmm. So the more tools you have at your disposal, the better off you are, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And it's really important to have options. People can choose what works for them at any particular time. Uh, and what you're saying about uh, your eyes feeling differently at different times during the day, I don't, I don't experience that as much myself, but I have seen that in a lot of the participants who come in and do studies with us. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is Shuri's research on novel technologies for people with vision loss and how they interact with these technologies. Before we get into the details of the vast amount of research you've done in various areas, you made an interesting point on a video on your website saying that although a lot of the research is aimed at people with little to no vision, most of the people with vision problems actually have what you termed low vision, which means they have you know a reasonable amount of functional vision. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... I'm guilty of this as well. It seems like most of the people in accessibility uh, who are interested in visual impairments focus on eyes-free technologies. So they focus on technology that gives feedback via speech or tactile uh, or haptic feedback. And this is really surprising to me. And I actually, with a couple of collaborators, we did a survey of papers 
you know, as academics, we publish in conferences and journals. So we did a survey of some of the top conferences in our area between 2009 and 2013 when we did this. And we looked at all the papers that involved work on people with visual impairments. And then we looked at the ones that specifically address low vision. So they took into account that the target users had functional vision and could use it. Uh, and what we found is that close to 90% of the papers out there had to do with eyes-free interaction. So they did not take into account the fact that most people with visual impairments actually have vision that they can use and benefit from. What do you think the reason for that is? Is it just because the technology is cooler to do eyes-free interactions? Or you think there's more to it? There's definitely more to it. So I have a couple of theories as to why this is the case. First of all, I think that low vision is very difficult to understand. Many times it's an invisible disability. So a lot of times somebody can have low vision and you don't necessarily see that they have low vision. It's not like somebody who's walking on the street with a cane or a guide dog, very noticeable to, to people. Um, but if you have low vision, sure, you might use some assistive technologies. I mean, maybe you have like glasses that are slightly higher prescription, but maybe you don't. And you need to get to know the person much better to really understand what this is all about. So it's an invisible disability in that sense. It's also, like I said, it's difficult for people to understand visual perception. So I think there's this misconception that if someone can't see well, all you need to do is magnify uh, whatever they want to see, and they're good to go. And that's not at all the case. So like I said, I was using magnification exclusively as an assistive technology until about three years ago, and it was very difficult for me to read, even with magnification. I was incredibly slow and could only read small chunks of text at a time. And only after I started using speech did I realize how difficult it is for me to use magnification, because I never experienced anything else. So if I can't myself realize how difficult it is for me to see, it's even just imagine how much more difficult it is to communicate that to other people. You know, I guess the other interesting thing is often people don't like to admit that they have some issues, you know, even to themselves. You know, I know when I was an undergraduate, there were times when I could read okay if I kept my nose close to a book without any assistive aids. But there were times when my eyes got very blurry and I just couldn't read anything. And I learned to compensate by doing my homework and assignments when I could. But despite all that, I never really considered myself blind and didn't have a whole lot of associations with blind organizations or, you know, didn't seek out other assistive aids, although there weren't as many at the time. And that was in spite of having attended a school for the blind through fifth grade. So you might have had a hint that you had a visual impairment <laughs> right. being sent there. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's something that's really common for people who do have some vision. By the way, that's also something that makes doing research in this area more challenging because it's more difficult to find people who have low vision than it is to find people who are blind because they don't necessarily associate with any advocacy groups or communities of people with disabilities. Right. So in that talk on your website, one of the other things you mentioned was that you didn't think some of the assistive technologies for low vision people were doing the job as well as they could be. And that's what led you to do some of your research. Can you speak a little about that? Yeah. So we did a study to see what challenges people experienced when doing a real world task 
And also we were really interested in seeing what technologies or more generally what tools and strategies they use to overcome certain challenges. So one thing that's really interesting about low vision is that uh, we couldn't find when we were looking through work that's already been published, we couldn't find a single study that was done that actually explored what people were doing in real life. So in other words, there's a lot of material online, a lot of, for example, orientation and mobility uh, materials and textbooks that talk about all the different types of technologies and low vision aids that are available, like the different types of magnifiers and different types of monoculars and what you could use them for, what they're designed for and how they can help. But we couldn't find a study that actually studied people's behavior uh, and tried to determine whether people were actually using <laughs> monoculars and magnifiers when performing daily activities. So we did this study and we asked people to find a nearby pharmacy and to buy a very specific type of Tylenol product. Uh, and the reason for that is that this is a daily sort of task that people need to be able to do to be productive and independent people uh, living in our society. And it also involved a lot of interesting subtasks like finding a nearby business, uh, actually walking there, navigating through street traffic, and then also uh, dealing with a store. So indoor navigation within a store and finding an actual product on a shelf. So they wouldn't be expected to rely on one particular technology or one type of coping scheme. Right, exactly. And we were really curious to see what they did. I, we had no idea. We didn't know if they'd all pull out their monoculars and use them or pull out a cane or just ask someone, which would have also been very interesting information. Well, what did they do? Well, we found many things. One of the things that we found was that people use their smartphones a lot, which may or may not be surprising. But even though they use their smartphones and depended on them to do this, the accessibility features for low vision on the smartphone did not afford a good experience. So it was still very difficult for them to use the phone interface. Well, I must say, I think you selected an a particularly challenging task. I'm fully sighted, and buying the kind of pain reliever you're looking for is actually difficult, even if you can see just fine, because there's so many varieties, and there's just a few inches of shelf space for each variety. Yeah, and I think you're raising a really good point in that there are challenges that everyone experiences when doing these sorts of activities, any activity, right? But for a person with low vision, these challenges are confounded. They're exacerbated. And this is a real-life, everyday task that someone's going to run into. Yeah, definitely. I was also going to say that uh, so people use their smartphones, and so the tools that they were using that they did have at their disposal were still not completely well designed. There were, there were still many challenges that people were experiences when using these tools. The other interesting thing that we found was that there were certain tasks that there just weren't any tools available to help people uh, with. So for example, this task of visual search, which in this case, it was finding a specific product on a shelf in a store. So, you know, a sighted person would glance around and scan the shelves to look for this particular product. That's a visual search task. There are many other visual search tasks, like finding a friend in a crowd, finding a sign, for example. Many people had difficulty finding the pharmacy sign when they reached the drugstore. 
And there was no technology that was available to help people do this. So that was really interesting to us. So that's interesting. They might be able to accomplish part of the task with their technology and other coping skills. But if you want to complete the whole task, you had to do all these subtasks. Yeah, that's right. So what kind of innovative ideas do people like you talk about in terms of addressing these issues? What, what is your research aimed at? We look for these unaddressed challenges, like finding the product on the shelf once you're standing in front of it. So this visual search task. And then we think about what cutting edge technology is available right now that can help you complete these tasks. So because my training is in computer science, my students have a background in electrical engineering and computer science. Uh, I had once one postdoc who was a psychologist. So together, we have a lot of knowledge about the state of the art in different fields. And so we try to design new ways to address these challenges. Can you give some examples? Yeah. So with the visual search task, finding a product on a grocery store shelf, we know that there are computer vision techniques that are available right now that can find a product. So we can use a computer. We can tell a, a computer program what product we're looking for, and it can fairly reliably identify it. You know, if you have a camera and you take a photo or a video of the environment. So what we did is we designed an application for smart glasses that you uses computer vision to find a certain product on a shelf. And then once the computer finds it, it has to let you know where it is. So we designed these visual cues that are accessible to people with visual impairments uh, that direct your attention to the product. So these cues, uh, we have several different ones, but I'll give you an example. One of them are lines that it's a set of lines that they start around the outside of the glasses, so around the periphery of your visual field, and then they come inward, they converge on the product. So this is like an overlay on the image that kind of directs someone's vision towards the area of interest. Exactly. That is way cool. Are you working with any manufacturers or vendors to incorporate that into any of these smart glasses? We're not. So our vision is that in the next few years, many different types of smart glasses will be much more available. Uh, there'll be a mainstream technology that many people buy, just like they buy their iPhones right now from the store. And so we want to develop software. So an application, you'll then be able to download on one of these devices. We're trying to stay away from designing specialized hardware that you need to buy only if you're blind or low vision because that ends up being a lot more expensive and has a lot of other complications. So what other types of creative ideas do you have for, you know, making life a little bit easier for people with low or no vision? Well, another really cool project that we're working on involves 3D printing. So we think that 3D printing can have a huge impact on blind people and anyone really, but especially on blind people, because it's going to be much easier and much more accessible to make tactile materials, tactile representations of things. So for example, again, we're looking into the future a little bit. So in the next few years, you can imagine that every school will have one or more 3D printers. And then if you're learning about some concept in a science class, you can just have the teacher print out a model of that concept for you. 
And if you're blind, of course, you can't see the image in the textbook or online, so you can feel the tactile model to learn about uh, that concept. So we're excited about 3D printing, but it still has some drawbacks. So if you think about an image in a textbook, it usually has some kind of visualization of an object, let's say a cell, and then it has labels that label the different parts of the cell with some arrows and there's a title and a caption. So there's a lot of auxiliary information in addition to the image itself. And it's busy. Yeah, that's very true. But then when you print something with a 3D printer, sure, I can print out a tactile model of a cell uh, and I can feel the different components, but I still don't know what they are. And right now, there's no easy way of labeling them or of adding any sort of auxiliary information. So we're trying to find ways, low barrier ways of adding audio and other multimedia information to different areas in a 3D print. Again, let's use the example of a cell. So you can take this 3D printed model of a cell and you can touch the different components of it and then you have a nearby computer or tablet that'll explain to you what these components are. And I'll bite. How is that done? So we've looked into different ways of doing it. Right now we're using, again, computer vision. So the idea is that uh, you can prop up your tablet or use the camera on your laptop and you put it kind of next to you on a desk and then you hold the 3D print and you explore it so you can feel it. And then when you want to get some information about a component of the print or part of the print, then you perform some kind of gesture. So right now we're looking into what gestures are appropriate, whether it's like a, a rub kind of gesture on that component or just you point at it and kind of hold your finger there for a while. And the camera will be able to detect this along with uh, using the programs that we've written. So it's almost like having a sighted companion, but in this case, the computer or tablet is looking at you and giving you feedback as to what you're touching. Yeah, exactly. Not bad. 3D printers have many, many exciting new uses, especially for helping people with visual impairments. And if you type 3D into the search tool on our website, you will come up with several shows we've done on that. But we'd like to attract your attention to two in particular, where Benetech and SAS have been working on similar projects to what Shuri just described. And those are episodes 1537 and 1542, respectively. So what other clever ideas are you working on these days? <laughs> so those are the two main ones. So another project involves wayfinding and navigation. When we walk around, when we're getting from one place to another, uh, there are many features in the environment that can affect how easy it is or how convenient, how accessible um, the route is. So, for example, when you're blind or low vision, different types of intersections can make a huge difference in how accessible the route is. So, you know, like generally the plus intersections are relatively easy to deal with, but a T intersection is more difficult. Right. And you need to know what it is when you're approaching the intersection. Right. And heaven help you if roads come in at different angles. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in Seattle, there were many five-way intersections. Oh. Which, yeah. Which drove me a little crazy. 
So anyhow, so we're interested in understanding what all the different features in the environment are that affect people's ability to navigate comfortably, specifically people who are blind. And then, and this is more than just intersections, it could be anything. So it could be um, whether uh, it's a narrow sidewalk and lots of foot traffic, you know, it could involve whether there are garbage cans and grassy areas for your dog. I mean, we're doing a study right now to understand what these different features are and how much and to what degree they affect people's mobility, both positively and negatively. So after we, we understand uh, all these different features, then we're going to design a routing engine and application that can give you directions, basically. So it can find a route from one place to another that takes these features into account. So instead of just giving you the shortest walkable route like Google Maps would give you, it could actually give you a much more customized route for people who are blind, for example, that takes into account the different positive and negative features in the environment. Oh, that would be really handy. Now for this week's final item, how to reach Shuri, how to learn more about her research, and how you can participate in it. So if people wanted to find out more about your research or the group you work with, where would you send them? Uh, so I have a website. Uh, it's shiriazencott.com. So it's just my name, .com. Can you spell that? Sure. It's S-H-I-R-I-A-Z-E-N-K-O-T dot com. And you have your list of publications there and some of the work that you're currently doing as long as a nice video that people can watch. Yeah. So I try to keep it up to date with some degree of success. Uh, I have a list of my publications. There's also a list of my students and I have to say they do a much better job of keeping their websites up to date. So you might want to go and click on their websites to see the projects that we're working on. And if people had particular questions for you or wanted to connect, how would they do that? So there is a contact me link on my website. So people can contact me in that way. Uh, but just as, as a warning, I get a lot of emails. So it's, it's hard for me to answer everything. But um, we're always looking for people in the tri-state area who can, we're, we're located in New York City, like I said. So we're always looking for participants, for people who are interested in giving us feedback about um, the technologies. So for people who, who do live around here and who would be interested in participating, they should definitely feel free to contact me. And do you have a social media presence? Not really. I have a Twitter account that I occasionally tweet at, but nothing significant. And what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is my name, at Shiri Azencott. And as usual, you can find all of that contact information and the resources we talked about in the show in the show notes for this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1726. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about Braille labeling and learning products. Wouldn't it be great if was the question that sparked a father to develop a novel way for his autistic son to communicate with others. Eventually, Logan Tech was formed and went on to develop assistive devices for the blind. 
We'll speak with Glenn Dobbs, the founder of Logan Tech, about his journey and about some intriguing products that he has developed and now sells. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.tiesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and on audioboom.com, at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.